Hey folks, thanks for listening to the TNLA Green Report. This episode was recorded early this year, and in the episode we're talking about labor, more specifically the H-2B program. Right now is a crucial time for the landscape industry as we push for more H-2B visas in 2022 and 23. Visit the TNLA Legislative Action Center found on TNLA's website to find out more on the latest action item regarding the fight for H-2B cap relief. All right, folks, welcome back to the TNLA Green Report. I'm very excited about today's episode. I've got Lori Witten with uh, me with Action Visa, and we're going to be talking labor. One of the preeminent issues for the Texas green industry, something that we constantly work on. Lori has uh, been involved in the industry and been involved on this issue for a long time. And she is uh, an incredible warrior for trying to get uh, more workforce for the green industry, both here in Texas and D.C. Lori, thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Ryan. It's good to see you again. It's been a, been a little while. Absolutely. So, Lori, when you uh, got into this industry, well, how did you get into the industry? What made you start Action Visa and, and kind of how did the business get started? Well, back in 2003, and the first, I guess I should start at the very beginning, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. Um, back in 2003, my father had an irrigation company. And his biggest struggle through all of that was not clients, um, not having enough work, it was finding enough labor. And that was even back in 2003. And then when he did find labor, a lot of times it was questionable and he would have issues with non-match and those kinds of things. So he began researching what could he do? And he found the H2B program. And so he started using the program or used it for the first time in 2003. Um, His first year, he used an agent. And while they got him his workers, what what happened after the workers got here is he, he didn't receive any direction on what to do with the workers once they got here. And so he came to me and he and I spent a lot of time reading about the program, understanding the program, and really digging down into what are you supposed to do once you get your workers? That was a big deal. If you just release at that point, then you haven't finished. Mm-hmm. And so after that, we, with all of our research, we realized, well, we really don't need an agent. I'll just do it for him. So he and I started doing it together, just his. And of course, as we did his, the word of mouth throughout the community in North Texas went, went out and we started getting requests from other employers. Can you help us? And so slowly but surely, we had worked up to about 30 people we were helping. And, and I'm like, Mm-mm, I think this might be a business. <laughs> yeah. And so at that point, um, we decided to make it a business and, and truly dive right in. And so that, that's how we came to be. It wasn't something we were looking at. It wasn't uh, something either one of us wanted to start. It just kind of came to us. We didn't come to it. Yeah, well, it's certainly an issue that is so prevalent, mm-hmm. I'm, it's probably no surprise to anybody that there was more than enough demand to, to make a business out of it. If uh, the listeners aren't uh, familiar with what H-2A and H-2B are, they are seasonal work visas um, to bring in foreign workers after an employer has proven that an American won't take the job. And there's all kinds of requirements. It's, a, it's not an easy program necessarily to participate in, and it's certainly not always cheap either. So, um, but I think it is a testament to how much of an issue this is for employers, uh, certainly seasonal employers, especially across the state, and the fact that they're willing to go through it and they'll use these programs. So how important are the H-2A and H-2B programs to your clients? 
they're critical to, to my clients. Um, just as you said, it's not an easy program. It's not an easy program to, to jump into specifically H2B. And I'm going to back up just a little bit. The H2B program is a capped program. It's for non-agricultural employers. Mm -hmm. um, the H2A program is a non-capped program. It's for, for agricultural employers. So first of all, you do have to have a true seasonal or peak load need. I'm not going to go into the, the nitty gritty of the definitions sure. at this point. I'm just going to call it seasonal. Um, but you do have to have a true seasonal need. And so you have to be able to prove that. Prove that. Now, the, the U.S. government defines seasonal. This is where it starts getting a little crazy, guys. Um, U.S. Department of Labor defines seasonal as not more than nine months. However, um, years prior years it had always been 10 months. Mm -hmm. And Congress has every year put a block on U.S. Department of Labor being able to enforce that a seasonal need is nine months. And so we still do 10 months. And that's what I'm talking about. It gets really confusing on how things happen because the regulations yeah. say one thing, but because of congressional blocks, there's another thing. Um, and so what happens is most of these employers, let's go with the, the green industry, let's go with uh, H2B landscaping industry, because mm -hmm. I know that's that's a lot of this. Um, Absolutely. You, the landscapers are, are profitable during their seasonal part of their year. They're not necessarily that profitable during the non-seasonal part of their year. So without having the workforce that they need during their really busy time, they don't make enough money to stay open year round, but they do have year round employees almost without exception. And so <clears throat> without the, the seasonal help, they're not profitable. They're, they're not yeah. going to be profitable. They're not going to be able to continue in operations. So- well and I've heard that from employers who describe it as, uh, especially with the H2B program and the issues there are with operating under a capped program, right? Mm -hmm. You may not be able to count on getting those workers mm -hmm. year to year. Um, it's hard to depend on that. And it really becomes just a factor of growth. Hopefully you have are able to find enough workforce. And that's a, a big wish right now of pretty sure. much every employer in this post COVID world. And so, um, you know, it, it's the H2B program, while critical, man, it's just so, it is so difficult um, for employers to be able to count on. And we really wish we had a, a more dependable program. Besides the cap, are you seeing any other challenges that H2A or H2B <clears throat> employers are having to deal with? Maybe regulatory or, or just how the programs operate? Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> um, we, we're seeing that, you know what, the, the issues cha change from year to year. Right now, a lot of what we're seeing, and I'm going to talk about in the um, adjudication process, uh, the process mm -hmm. where you're filing your documentation, it goes to DOL or uh, Department of Labor, or it goes to um, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. There is not a lot of consistency all the time in adjudicating or working those petitions. Um, between officer to officer. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, I do know that D USDOL and USCIS um, had to hire more people. I know that USCIS brought a lot of their work in-house away from contractors who had been doing the work for them for years. And when I mean the work, I mean working your paperwork. And so we don't see a lot of consistency in how they are asking for additional information or um, how the file is being treated. And so there's, it's always a big question mark and it, and it somewhat seems a little bit, um, and I think other agents and attorneys would agree with me. It seems mm -hmm. a little bit that sometimes the agents are being used, excuse me, 
got a little bit of cold here. <laughs> the agents are being used to train the the new staff that they may have over there. So we have some inconsistency in adjudication, which can cause some some issues because, as you said, the cap, the H two B cap is a big problem, and I, I'm going to circle back to that because that does have to do with what we're talking about. Right. Right now, because the demand far outweighs the number of visas available, and the wisdom or lack thereof <laughs> of creating a lottery system for employers to be able to get workers. And by lottery system, I mean, basically it's an arbitrary thing. When employers file during the heavy season of filing, U.S. Department of Labor arbitrarily assigns who's going to be in different buckets. So they, the applications are processed in that order. So if you get in bucket A, which is good, if someone tells you you're in bucket A, that's good because chances are your application is going to get work first. The problem is if you have someone who doesn't know how to work your file properly at U.S. Department of Labor, that could push you back. And so far, end, you will end up way behind. Yeah. And that's a big problem. So inconsistency in processing along with the instability of the program and the uncertainty of being able to get workers. I think those are our biggest struggles. Yeah. Um, wage increases over the years have been a, a big issue. Um, I don't think that they're nearly as big as sometimes we yell about. I think it was 2016 and I may be wrong, um, but I think it was 2016 US Department of Labor came out with a new wage methodology which caused the H2B wage rates to jump by 25 to 100%. I, yeah. think, the, I think the industry has now adjusted to that. Um, excuse me. So I don't think that's as big of an issue anymore, but I think we're going to see those wage rates really jump in the next, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to get a drink. Yeah, with inflation and all the mm -hmm. other economic pressures that, Absolutely. Uh, that employers are having to deal with. Yeah, I think our tw I think we're going to all be shocked at what's comes out of 2022 um, when the new July one wage rates come out in 2022. I think we're going to see an incredible jump. We've seen a big, big, huge jump in 2021 for the wages in production work. We didn't see that big of a jump for jump for landscape laborers, but we saw production wage rates jump up. And when I mean production, I'm talking about people that uh, workers that work in like quarries and they shake mm -hmm. stone. And yeah, mm -hmm. we saw those jump 75% this year. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I think you, you bring up a couple of really good issues that uh, employers need to be aware of before they go into the program. Um, you know, I just want to throw out some statistics there for mm -hmm. folks who are listening. Texas certifies more H2B positions than any other state. At the end of FY, uh, FY20, we had certified over 18,000 positions. And by certify, meaning the employer had proven and the DOL had agreed that 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 is a true need. Um, and so if you think about in the H2B program, there are 66,000 visas under the, the cap and Texas certifies that many, over 18,000, uh, you know, there's unquestionably going to be Texas employers that are capped out every year in that. In recent years, the DOL certified in total across the nation, almost triple the cap. I think at the end of 20, at the end of FY20, it was over 160,000. For sure this year, uh, it's it's going to be more, and that's not surprising considering the growth we've seen every year mm -hmm. in the number mm -hmm. of positions that they certify. Um, and, you know, the costs associated with the H-2A program as well go up uh, every year. The, the adverse effect wage rate continue to rise. 
and sometimes probably don't reflect accurately what the wage rates are in agriculture. But what's important about that, and I think what policymakers sometimes misunderstand when they hear criticisms about these programs are you know, cheap labor for employers, which is laughable if you really know anything about the program, um, pre-employment costs average over $1,000 per employee. So pre-employment costs. <laughs> when we've explained that to policymakers, you know, it's kind of, it, it, uh, it kind of smacks in the face of this argument that, oh, well, these are employers trying to get cheap labor. And I mean, you know, that's a frequent criticism of the programs, but not at all accurate. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard others, right? Oh, yeah. um, you know, criminal element or who, who you're bringing in <clears throat> under the programs, um, you know, the organized labor arguments against the programs. And so I do want to spend a second kind of talking through those, if we can, about what some of the responses are. Obviously, we've covered with how much the, how much the, the programs cost. Right. But uh, talk about the screening, I guess, that employers go through uh, or employees go through rather when they come through the program. And that's a that's an intensive and laborious process for the employers, too. Right. Absolutely. I mean, they're waiting. They're waiting on the employees to get there. Absolutely. Well, we are talking about screening for the, the non-immigrant worker that's coming yes. into work. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's not a walk in the park and we don't they don't. Everyone who applies to get a visa after the employer has been approved does not get in for multiple, multiple reasons. They have to present themselves. Let's, let me back up even further than that. Their passports are provided to the U.S. Department of State at the consulate office in their home country mm-hmm. um, in advance of them actually going in for their appointment. They go in the day before their appointment for fingerprints, uh, a, basically a bio check, fingerprints, photographs, and answer some questions. They also fill out a form called the DS-160, which does some background information so that U.S. Department of State can run a background check on those workers or on those individuals. At this point in time, they're not workers. They're individual um, foreign work, foreign individuals who want to come over and take a job that no U.S. worker stepped forward and wanted to take. And so after that, then they do go to the Department of State. Now, if they've been in the country on multiple, multiple visas, they may get to skip this step, especially right now during COVID. Um, Actually, in 2020, um, they weren't doing interviews at the Department of State. So individuals who hadn't been here on previous visas were not even allowed to enter. Um, They are back to doing interviews now. So we're going to go to the standard processing. So then after they've had this extensive background check done on them, then they go and present themselves to the Department of State or at the consular office in their home country, the U.S. Department of State. Mm-hmm. And they're interviewed, they're asked questions. If their answers don't match what came back on their background check, um, they could be put in a pending status to do a further investigation, or more likely they're just going to be n- denied altogether. Yeah. So it, it's not like we're just opening up and saying, okay, the, the employer, you've got this, you've got all, you've got, you're allowed to bring in 10 workers, just throw out there and get any 10 workers you want. It doesn't work that way. There is a extensive background check done on that. And then on the workers, on the employer side, um, U.S. Department of Labor is a governmental agency whose mission it is to protect the U.S. workforce. So Mm -hmm. keeping in mind, that's their mission. That's what they're supposed to do. So the first step of this process is going to them and asking for permission to be able to bring workers in and to get an approval on that permission. The employer has to prove to U.S. Department of labor that they have 
exhausted the domestic labor pool. Right. They've opened job orders by the state workforce agencies um, in Texas, where Texas Workforce Commission through the Work in Texas website. Mm-hmm. And, and those agencies are actively sending applicants to the employers that are trying to get the okay from U.S. Department of Labor to bring workers in. So it, it's, not a, it's not a passive program. It's not a, a, a passive process. There, there is right. applicants. Um, <clears throat> now, once you've gotten through that part of the process and you've proven to D- DOL that you can't find workers, then you get that approval and you're not done because after that, You've got to take that approval to DOL, hope there's visas left available if you're H-2A, if you're, I mean, I'm sorry, visas left available to you if there's H-2A, of course, H-2B, there's no cap. But then you take that approval from DOL and then you have to go ask permission from USCIS, who is now going to ask you to prove that you really have a temporary seasonal need. Mm -hmm. And then may re-adjudicate what US Department of Labor already has done. So... Yeah, it, it is not a simple process. We're not, the employers are under a great deal of scrutiny. The workers are under a great deal of scrutiny. It, it's not, it, it's not just a walk in the park. No doubt. Well, and you've been doing it for a number of years. Why do you think there's a challenge to get uh, U.S. policymakers to give us some of the reforms that we need? I mean, you just illustrated mm-hmm. the extensive process that employees who uh, <laughs> are coming into the country under this temporary visa uh, go through. And I think that makes an argument for why we need effective cap relief and returning mm-hmm. worker is a great, is a great mechanism that's worked in the past. Mm-hmm. And then it goes away. So mm-hmm. why, I mean, why in your view, just um, real quickly, I mean, you don't have to launch into, you know, the political situation ongoing in the country sure. and Congress's inability to get a lot of things done. But why do you think particularly these programs we've struggled to get reform? Um, it depends on who has control of uh, the Congress and the uh, White House, basically. And and it sounds pretty, and I'm going to make it very simple. I'm going to, I'm going to explain it in a very simple way. It's much more complex than this, but uh, I went to visit a a very prominent um, and he, this, I went to visit a Congressman in Austin, very prominent. And he Mm -hmm. put it the most succinct way I've ever been told this. And this was several years back. I was in his office and I asked him, do you know that there's a labor issue? Do you know that the H2B program is beneficial? Um, and I'm not going to go into all the reasons why he knew why he goes, Oh, absolutely. I agree with this 100%. I said, then why will you not put your name down? Why won't you stretch your neck out for us? He pointed out his window and he said, I know it in here, but they got to vote for me out there. And, 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 Oh, I'm pointing. (laughs) Sorry. You guys can't see me. I'm pointing out the window. Um, But they have to point, they have, my my constituents have to vote for me and they don't know it. And his, 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 his words to me exactly were, you have to educate my constituents. In other words, you've got to educate the public of how important this program is so that they want it as badly as you do. Now that's, that's very simple terms, guys. I get that. And so that's what this, um, this, this congressman said to me, well, that was during the last administration. And that was when we had a um, Republican House and a Republican Senate. Well, now we're kind of, we're divided in the House and the Senate and we have Democrat in in the White House. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing this right now is pushback from from organized labor, from labor unions. 
Yeah. They're saying that um, we don't need any foreign workers. We have enough workers here in the United States. Well, you know what? They could have made possibly, they could have never made this argument, but I'm going to give them that when we were at 10% unemployment. We're back down to, I, do you know what we are, Ryan? Are we around 4.2 in Texas? Oh, yeah. Right I mean, now? it's almost, it's approaching, I think, historic lows, kind of where we were under the end of the Trump Pre-COVID, presidency. Yeah. So, yeah. We, when you hit 4.2% unemployment in, in this country, you're at full employment. There's nobody left. We, right. we're, there, there's nobody left looking for jobs. So, but in reality, I believe, now this is Lori projecting this. This is, this is just from my own head and sometimes, you know, but I believe the labor unions probably really understand that we need more labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally believe if, the labor unions would agree to come to a table and we could all sit down and we could have a conversation. I believe what we're really going to find out that the problem is, is labor union memberships are not where they would like them to be. Mm-hmm. And um, if we could come, if there was a way to come to reasonable, um, a reasonable place in the middle where, I don't know, could we pay a fee per worker? I, I don't know an answer, but I truly believe in almost everything you look at, things come down to dollars and cents. And, sure. and I don't want to project onto them anything, but I do know that our issues right now are because of labor union. And I'm going to tell you that that is the primary reason rather than from the Republican side, which whether whether it was biased against a certain type of worker from a specific place or whether it really was that the general population does not understand that we have a shortage of workers yeah. because everybody has a cousin who's unemployed. Absolutely. Well, and you, but you've done a good job though, explaining why the waxing and waning of certain political parties really has not alleviated the challenges mm-hmm. we faced in getting mm-hmm. the reforms that we need. No. And so it really doesn't matter whether it's R or D who's in charge no. in Washington, DC. Um, we, we have these challenges that persist. And I, and I do agree that probably that, that a part of it is educating the public. And that's kind of what our mission is here to do is to help share how these programs work, why they're so important to the economy and to employers. And that the fact that, again, it's not cheap labor, it's not, it's not easy. And frankly, if employers could find the work, they'd probably give them the signing bonus that it costs them to file for these programs, you know, what employee, a potential employee wouldn't want that money in their pocket. So I think it, it's demonstrated time and again that the programs are critical. And I, and I, again, I agree with uh, what would happen in that scenario where if all sides came to the table, uh, it would all be pretty apparent at some point that it is a dollars and cents equations. This episode, we also had the chance to talk with Gray Delaney, executive director with the Seasonal Employment Alliance, SEA, about the legislative efforts to reform the H-2 programs. Gray, how are you today? doing well thank you for having me yeah so we're we want to talk briefly about um what are the solutions for finding uh workable reforms to the h2a and h2b programs i know that's a very broad question but there are a couple of pieces of legislation floating out there there's also um something of a temporary fix for the immediate future looking into 2022 so can you kind of walk us through what what is available, what's being worked on by the industry? We've had, that is the administration releasing additional visas, the Department of Homeland Security. Now, Congress has given the administration uh, the authority to release additional visas. This is going on the fifth straight year. We, 
we were hopeful that we we're going to get some additional visas for the first half, meaning the you know the cap is in two allotments. Mm -hmm. And this year, the first half cap was met a month earlier than last year. And so the latest dates of need that got through this year were December third. And I can tell you that uh, even a couple of years ago, you know, February, the middle of February, early February, was getting through for employers in Texas. And you know, landscapers in Texas really do need their workers in in February or at, you know at least early March. And uh, so you know, the cap has forced them to, to, to take the workers out on April 1. So, you know, we're hopeful we're going to get some additional visas here soon. And then, uh, but we really will, just because the, the demand is going to be off the charts for this year, we really do need the administration to release that full number of, of 69,320 visas. But it'll probably, no matter what, be done in two different allotments of releases, probably one here in the next week, God willing. And then one uh, in coming in uh, right when the second half cap is met, probably late February or, or March, ideally. So to sum but that that's up, one. Real we quick, gotta, we, Greg, let me sum that up real quick for the for the listener. So basically, that's the immediate relief that could be available for 2022. That's the temporary relief that is available in the language that we fight for at the end of the year um, to try to get the discretion of the administration to release additional right. visas. And, That's you know, right. it's an important fight, but it's also a temporary Band-Aid to what is a long-running issue. Fighting to keep the, keep the, getting it done. We keep, you know, these employers who desperately need certainty can have some certainty. And so on that front, we have two different uh, introduced the bill that would extend returning work. It's obviously broadly supported within the industry. Now, on, uh, you know, because of the, the coronavirus and the unemployment situation that was created last year, you know, we, we, we've, we've been working very closely with Senator Graham on a proposal that would shift landscaping into and other industries, equine workers, seafood processors, including uh, shrimp processors from Texas, would go into the uncapped H2A program. Now, you know, that certainly does have its downsides. They require housing and such, but, you know, we do believe there really is a need for a, a modernization of that of that H2A program to broaden the, the definitions and include more of these occupations that really should be in the H2A program. So that's one solution. That's in the Senate. That bill currently has, I believe, four co-sponsors or three co-sponsors, including and, and then plus Graham, so four total. Mm -hmm. And then the the bill, and then, and then the bill in the, in the House has about thirty-two. But we've got a, picked up another five or six this week when we're in Washington. Our fly-in, we got so we should be up to about thirty-seven or thirty-eight. And our goal is to get to fifty by the end of the year, which I think is, is certainly certainly obtainable. But you know, I would I would say that you know, being in Washington this week that we've got the best environment we've had in years uh, to, to get something permanent done. I mean, I think there's a, we had several in-person meetings with Democratic senators and there's a real acknowledgement that this, that this H2B program and the H2 programs in general are a solution to the labor crisis that you know, everyone's feeling. And you, know, you go to a restaurant anywhere, everyone's seeing it now. And, I, and that's you know, the, our opponents, the unions on the left and the, and the, and the anti-immigrant crowd on the right are really losing their influence uh, because you know everyone knows that there's just there's not enough work, not enough workers out you know out there. Yeah, highly demonstrated. Well, that and that went right to my next question: is what is the political landscape? And that's good news. I mean, the fact that a uh, staffer in you know an intern in a congressman's office knows enough that that when they go to their favorite restaurant, they see a sign on the door that says, "Hey, expect slow service tonight because we can't find enough wait staff to work all the tables." then, uh, you know, it's, it's readily apparent for even those in the bubble of DC to know that there's not enough workforce to meet the need out there. So hopefully that bodes well for a positive political environment. So we've got a potential solution in the Senate, a potential solution in the House. Um, these are things that really employers need to engage on. I mean, these employers need to be out there telling their story. 
So I want Gray, if you would, um, walk us through advice you would give to employers who um, maybe want to engage, but don't know how, what, what should they do? Uh, I think the best thing an employer can do right now is, is to reach out to their member of Congress and to ask them to co-sponsor one of these two bills, because that's, we need to get that level of support up. Now, while we work on making a, a, and getting these members and the reason, for example, the reason we have Senators Graham and Senator Manchin is the lead, you know, Graham was the lead Republican, Manchin was the lead Democrat. They're two very powerful senators. Graham, someone that's been intimately involved with immigration negotiations going back years. And then Senator Manchin, of course, who has a, uh, his vote is extremely important as one of this kind of the swing votes in the Senate. So, you know, that's why we, it's, instead of getting two influential members is really going to help the viability of that bill. And, and the best way we can support them is to try to increase, get more co-sponsors the bill, but also just increase awareness of the problem to create, as you said, Ryan, the political environment to get this done. Because oftentimes we've been told wink, wink by some of these Democrats, look, we're with you. And if, if you're trying to, we're trying to make a play to get this in the year end spending package, you know, we'll, we understand there's a problem. We'll help, we'll help get that across the finish line. And so they may not be willing to co-sponsor it just because of political issues with the unions, but they're still still willing to help us behind the scenes. And that's that's really what we need. But, you know, Senator McConnell, Senator Schumer, I think at this point, we're finally getting to the point where where we're getting members to go to them and say, you know, this is a really important issue that needs to be solved and needs to be included in the year and spending package. So basically we have a you know, I cannot stress this enough. We have a two and a half month sprint until the CR expires, which is the current government funding bill on February 18th. And that is our vehicle. We have got to get into that bill because if we don't get in that bill, we are not getting anything for a long time. Mm-hmm. And because we're heading into an election year and the appropriations bill and this will be, will, the, the government will not be funded on time next year because there's an election. And so, you know, we're looking at, well, you know, probably another year at, at, at least. So we, we have a, a real window of opportunity right here. We have members that are very engaged and then we're gonna have a crisis come January 1 that we're gonna really need to capitalize on to drive as much grassroots engagement as possible. So this, this, is, the, this, is, our, this is our opportunity and, and we need to really, I know people are tired of the fight. It's been three or four years now of, of this cap being a major, major issue. And I understand that, but you know, now's the time for us to completely, to, to double down. Yeah, Lori, uh, when you're looking, when you're talking to your clients um, or just the industry in general, and they maybe want to engage on these issues and talk to Congress, um, but don't know how, or what would you, what do you recommend to someone the best, most effective way to engage on these? I'm going to parrot a little bit of what Gray said, but then I'm also going to add, um, become involved in one of it, it, uh, TNLA, you guys are very politically active. Get involved with your PAC, get involved with your organization, stay informed on what is coming up, what is going on and when you need to act. Join C, um, Seasonal Employment Alliance. If your agent's already a member of Seasonal Employment Alliance, you're by proxy a member as well. And make sure that when you're getting those newsletters from TNLA asking for a political alert, I know you send out political alert Mm -hmm. notices. I get them and I act upon them. I forward those out to my Texas clients. Um, Same with Seasonal Employment Alliance. They send them out. Whatever organization that you can get involved in that can help you give guidance, especially if you're not comfortable with it. Um, I know when I go to DC and I've been to DC with you as well, Ryan, and obviously with Gray, 
go to DC, have a face-to-face meeting, but go to DC with one of your associations or organizations when they're going and have them help you get an appointment, get a face-to-face so you can tell your story directly to your congressman or if not your congressman, maybe their legislative lead, maybe their chief of staff. Just have your short elevator pitch that takes you two to three minutes about how this issue affects your business and what it does to the economy of your area. That's important that your congressmen want to know that. And when you go to those meetings, especially if you're doing it through one of these organizations, you're going to be going to one of those meetings with someone who is already seasoned with it. So you're not walking in there. It's not scary. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is not scary at all. It's actually kind of invigorating to be a part of the process. I personally love it whenever I have time to go. I don't, I try to go at least once a year. Um, I used to try to go four times a year, but uh, I don't right now. It's uh, just too much going on, but hopefully sure. we can we can get back to that. But I personally believe that a face-to-face, if not in DC, you can get off, you can get meetings with your, uh, your Congress members in your district as well. And if you need help with that, um, I imagine Ryan, you could probably help them get some appointments. Absolutely. Um, your agent might be able to help you get appointments or your attorney or seasonal employment alliance can also help. So you have plenty of resources that you can use that will help you get those meetings and possibly even take those meetings with you. I know I'm pretty open. I've told people many times, if you're going to see a congressman, you're not comfortable walking into that office on your own. I have no problem going in there. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. I think that's a good way to sum it up. And I agree with you, invigorating is the right word because sometimes folks don't realize they finally get into that room and they can give voice to what has been probably a frustration for a long time, mm-hmm. you know? And it's it's an opportunity to act on something that really directly affects their business. And they know their story better than anybody else. And that's one of the things policymakers like to hear more than anything is the story of a business or employer in their district that perks their ears more than anybody else coming into the uh, office uh, with a need. So I want to thank both of y'all for your participation, for joining us. Um, It's an important topic, certainly is not going away. There's lots of opportunity to engage as we've talked about this afternoon. And, uh, you know, we just want employers to get involved because it's the only way we're going to get progress and reform on what ultimately are two of the most critical programs right now that providing relief for the, the, the workforce shortage in the Texas green industry. So Gray, Lori, thank you so much. Ryan, thank, thank you. you for having thank us. Thank you, Ryan, for the great work, great work you do. Appreciate it. Abs- yeah. Absolutely. <laughs>